When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus. Stay chill or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Chris Holmes, and this is Burned by Books. In 2017, a former student of mine put Elif Bataman's debut novel, The Idiot, in my hands and said, if you don't think this is amazing, we probably shouldn't be friends. It took me about two pages to realize that I was reading something special, a voice that felt totally new and intellectually vibrant, so present and curious that I didn't care to leave it behind even when I had finished reading. We weren't the only readers to be mesmerized by Elif's freshman at Harvard, Céline, and the novel would go on to be a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize. When I heard that Elif was writing a sequel, picking up with Céline's sophomore year, I was desperate to get my hands on a copy. But I will also admit to feeling nervous that this sophomore effort might, might feel less vital this time around. I needn't have worried. The novel, Either Or, borrows its title from a book by Kierkegaard, and it is as wickedly funny and densely elusive as its predecessor. In fact, the 1996 of Céline's college life feels more urgent, even as it is perforce a nostalgic look back at youth. As much as I was invested in Céline's ordinary moments of revelation and disappointment, I felt like she was equally, if not more so, invested in the ideas that undergird my existence now in 2022. Perhaps what I love most about Elif Bataman's Either Or is that it balances the liveliness of intellectual inquiry with the excitements of even the most banal youthful experiences. It is truly a remarkable feat and I was so pleased to get to live with Céline for another year in her life. I hope you enjoy my interview with Elif Bataman. Let's start the show.
Welcome back. Celine is back at Harvard. After her adventures flying off to Hungary with the mysterious Ivan in Elif Bataman's Pulitzer Prize finalist, The Idiot, Celine returns for her sophomore year in Either Or, the much-anticipated sequel. When The Idiot was first published, critics and readers alike were taken with the intimacy in which Elif introduced us to the workings of Celine's mind. Here was a young person on fire with a passion for knowledge, omnivorous for new ideas. Couched in a rare and cutting wit, and with a one-of-a-kind voice, Celine's narration hums along like a machine for the dissection of texts, philosophical and literary, as well as the workings of her relationships with friends and acquaintances. For many, this felt entirely new. If you've ever truly loved a book, Celine was your muse. While there was certainly a romance at the heart of the idiot, it was the romance of ideas that carried the most heat. I'm happy to say that in Elif's sequel, Either Or, that sine qua non voice, that effervescent, insatiable mind, is even more absorbing than in the first go-round. This time, the intellectual aspirations of Celine, Svetlana, and their cadre of hilarious nerds and social misfits come face-to-face -face with the other fire coursing through campus a desire to understand one's evolving maturity according to a standard of connection with an intimate partner, physical, emotional, and otherwise. While Celine herself is increasingly confident in her intellectual abilities, dazzling us with her mental perambulations around philosophical treatises, surrealist manifestos, and the Russian literary canon, she is, however, deeply uncertain about the connection between those passions and those of her body. A series of strange and strained physical encounters only complicate Celine's sense that she is a mystery unto herself. Add to this the presence of Yvonne in emails and in the specter of ex-girlfriends lurking. The result is a novel of uncommon candor about the sexual lives of young people that somehow manages to be the most authentic approximation of what it is like to wrestle with ideas, small and large. For this reader, it is miraculous. Welcome to the show, Elif Bataman. I'm so delighted to be here. Thank you. And thank you for that extremely generous introduction. I really appreciate it. I'm thrilled to get to talk to you. While I think that one can love either or without having read The Idiot, it is certainly its sequel. Why did you decide to return to Celine, to Harvard, and to the moment where The Idiot left off? You know, the decision to return to the moment that The Idiot left off um, came while I was promoting The Idiot. Um, it the, so the book came out in 2017. Um, I started doing like this kind of interview early, like in January of, of 2017. And that was when I first started to encounter readers' responses. And it was, you know, Trump had just been inaugurated and it was a mm. very um, kind of chaotic political time. Uh, that year went on to be extremely turbulent. That Me Too happened and, you know, Black Lives Matter. And the next year was... Um, the Kavanaugh hearing made a really big impression on me. And it was a time when a lot of people were revisiting, a lot of people in America, especially people my age, but 
all different ages, were thinking a lot about the 90s. Um, there was a revisiting of the Monica Lewinsky scandal. You know, Rodney King was was coming up again. Anita Hill was coming up again. And I think a lot of women in particular were narrating their earlier experiences to themselves using words that maybe they didn't have access to using like a language that we didn't have then like, Mm -hmm. you know, rape culture and patriarchy. And looking back at that time, it seemed kind of, you know, benighted. And when I looked at my earlier self and I thought about some of the decisions that I made when I was that age, specifically in terms of relationships with, with men, with, with guys, it seemed to me that I had made the wrong decisions, decisions that had limited my freedom rather than expanded it. Mm-hmm. And there's a ten- temptation, I think, when you look back both at historical periods and at your own life to think like, oh, in the past, we were just stupider. And I think that that's a big fallacy, right? Like I'm fully as stupid now as I was then. I just have better information. <laughs> so I, I really wanted to go back to that time and think about what was it that made those decisions seem correct at the time that felt like a really important and useful historical exercise, both so that, you know, I would understand that about myself, but also so that readers could think about their own past selves and about the historical past and even about the present and think, you know, because in the 90s, we thought we were very woke and progressive and um, Mm -hmm. liberated. And I really thought sexism was over and I had nothing to worry about. And now it seems really different. But, you know, how is it now going to look in 20 years? You can't say that, but we can look at the past, which is why I wanted to return to this period. Yeah, and and I love it in particular because I I think we um, were in college at comparable times. If you are, uh, do you overlap with Celine's um, era in college? Is that? Oh yeah, it's exactly. I was okay. uh, like class of ninety nine. <laughs> yeah, so we we overlap almost exactly, and and so it it did this in a really wonderful and specific way for me, and kind of cast me back into the into the nineties. And as you say, with with a different kind of language with which to address things that that went on, um, and so I'm I'm very grateful for it. And you know, speaking of campuses, uh, people who listen to the show will know that I really love the campus novel genre. Um, And it's something that I think has gotten fuller and richer and more textured and more complete, uh, especially in the last five years. There are a lot of subcategories. There's dark academia with badly behaved students and faculty full of sexual improprieties. There are college romances, novels that use the campus as a site of the Bildungsroman, and of course, colleges as fronts for instruction in magic or the occult. But I would say that you're working in a different milieu. Either or is less the story of college and more an opportunity to watch a thinking mind set upon ideas, major and minor, that have shaped the modern world. The plot of the novel is really the cognitive mapping of Celine's engagement with books and thinkers that have shaped the way we understand the world. Is it the campus that allows you to liberate Celine's mind or could, could this take place anywhere? Like the campus novel that I was the, thinking about the most when I was writing this, I'm not sure if it actually is counted as a campus novel, but Never Let Me Go by Kazuo Oh, definitely. Shiguro. 
Absolutely. Yeah, because I, I do think of this as it's a novel of ideas and it's also a novel of ideology. It's someone who's realizing mm-hmm. that there are all these times in the book where Sidon is like, you know, she's aware that she's having an experience that other people designed for her for some reason or that she's like walking through these monuments that exist and have been put there for her to be in some relationship to them. And it seems like there's some kind of reason for that. And that, that reason might even have to do with her biology and her body in some way that she doesn't particularly know. And there's a feeling of something like sinister going on under the surface, although also a lot of wonder and, and self-contained magic, which is something that I really like about many of Ishiguro's novels, actually, mm. where he has kind of like a, like this idyllic world, like, oh, the English country house or the, you know, this elite boarding school or the central European town. And you get the kind of aesthetic of that town, but then you also get some, the currents that keep things moving. And I feel like the the campus is a self-contained world that you can portray in an aesthetic way. And it really gives you an opportunity to look at the currents that the intellectual and ideological currents that determine our external lives and that are often animating these kind of like quaint fantasy spaces like the campus. I, I mean, I absolutely think Never Let Me Go is an archetype of the campus novel. And, mm. and and you described, I think, really nicely how I think of it. Uh, it's funny that that book has come up in the three years of my podcast more than any other book. And oh, it, interesting. And I think it has... Um, a profound effect and and which is amazing because it is a, a novel of unsaid things and and in a way you 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 differ because um Celine doesn't leave anything unsaid but I also mm-hmm. love that I love mm-hmm. the kind of um logoria of of her mm-hmm. mind and uh you know, I'm I'm interested in the way that you portray like actual internal cognitive thinking, and and I I've come to think of it as like this wonderful kind of intellectual tangential thinking, and we see Celine's voracious intellectual appetite move from Kierkegaard to a Fiona Apple song to Voltron, the composite robot action hero to oral sex. And with each move, the reader is building a more complete understanding of the workings of Selin's mind. How did you decide on each of these literary, philosophical, and cultural touchstones? And how did you go about making these musings feel central to Selin's as a character who feels round and whole to the reader? I mean, first of all, thank you. I'm happy that they that they feel central. Um, I wouldn't say that it was actually a choice to seek out to seek out these particular touchstones. I think they they kind of could have been anything. It's very much the material that was around her. I think of it for me. I mean, that's just how my mind works. And uh, Selin is very much based on my earlier self and my my way of looking at the world. There's a part early on in either or where she's looking at the course catalog and she's like can't understand why the courses are divided in the particular way they are like Mm -hmm. you know why are some things in anthropology and others are in religion and some things are in philosophy and why is science categorized by like size and literature is by region and why isn't the other way around and i those those categories that those categories and those modes of separating things and those modes of saying like this is related to this and that's related to that and that's a non sequitur it i that never came naturally to me so it's much more natural for me to go from 
you know, all the things. I, I just think of Selin as a person who's in the world. And I think of the novel as a form that is uniquely capable of describing all of the experiences that go into being a person in the world without having to separate them. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, that's just, it just feels like to me, that's the fabric of what experience and, and the novel feels like. Yeah, she's illuminating the artificiality of those classifications and 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 showing how the mind doesn't operate in the course catalog um, way of grouping things. And I, mm-hmm. I that helps me understand a, a lot more why I, I find her way of thinking so attractive, because it's I guess it's more natural to the human mind's disinterest in classification. I mean, the thing that I'm always thinking is like how much of what we take, it's really like the the basic Foucault 101, like how much of what we take Mm -hmm. to be the invariant structures of how things are, are actually some convention that some guy thought of for some reason (laughs) that we're never going to know. And (laughs) that's what I love about Céline is that she's always asking that and, and those things don't feel natural to her yet. And actually writing from that voice enabled me to, you know, there are many things that I have come to accept and see as natural that when I was thinking about the world from her perspective seemed weird to me again, which was a great gift. Hmm. Can I ask you to read a a rather random and yet indicative section from the novel when Céline goes to a party and we'll get a great Voltron reference here. (laughs) I'm so happy I've reached a fellow Voltron fan. You you so or, have. I assume. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's it's funny because there there was a um in the New Yorker there was an excerpt or a adapted se- section from the book that had the Voltron part in it. And then in the New Yorker the fiction gets fact checked and the checker had to check all of the stuff about Voltron and it involved like <laughs> going and looking and then uh, yeah I, I learned then about the the sex fetishes and the fan communities oh, yeah. and the different, yeah, oh I didn't gosh. realize that this was such a thing, but it, yeah. It, it really, really is diffuse within the culture. <laughs> yeah. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't know that it had come back. I thought it was an eighties thing. Mm. So I'm going to start to read. <sighs> I went to a party that Lakshmi organized at the literary magazine. She was greeting people at the door, smiling dazzlingly through fake eyelashes. You came And what's this? She touched the velvety material of my skirt. Finally, you're wearing something that shows your body. My aunt had bought me the skirt and matching top over winter break from the DKNY section in Bloomingdale's. They were made of some velvety, lush, yet drapey and elastic material, soft to the touch, reminding me of my childhood toy koala, Tombik, whose white fluffy ears I had thought of again and again as perfect for crying into. Usually when clothes were attractive in such a superficial way, by being so soft or sparkling or having a built-in hood, they ended up looking stupid in a particular way that made you see that you had been duped. But this time it wasn't like that. The two pieces were so sinuously and gently clingy without being tight. The way the skirt hung looked intentional, almost sentient. The cost for the two items, over $300, had struck me as obscene. How was a person allowed to have something like that? Seeing the garments hanging in Riley's in my closet made me feel sorrowful and moved almost to tears. How soft they were, how full of comfort, what a sign of the love that my family had always given me. Someone had put on an Ella Fitzgerald CD It produced a grown-up, New York-like, somehow Christmassy atmosphere 
that felt at odds with who Ella Fitzgerald was. She herself surely hadn't inhabited such spaces, at least not until she became a famous singer. That meant, too, that the prison that she was always singing about in that elegant, delighted tone between the devil and the deep blue sea, she wasn't in it and hadn't been in it. She had been in a different one. And so you were alone in an experience that she couldn't be having simply by virtue of the shimmering, silvery voice that could not but have utterly transformed the life of any person who sang like that. Surveying the room, I was surprised to see Shahin from the Turkish Students Club standing near the window, talking to a fair-haired guy. Oh, so I actually know a literature person, Shahin said when I went over. This isn't really my scene. He had to lean over for me to hear him. I had never stood so close to him before and hadn't realized how tall he was. His friend was also well over six feet. It was pleasant to stand beside them, to feel like the smallest and most delicate person. They were drinking to Shahin getting a grant to study Antarctic seabirds. He had to hurry because the winter here was the summer there. They made some joke I didn't hear, repeating the word ice pick. I don't know that I've ever seen an ice pick, I said, producing much mirth. Shahin brought me a glass of wine. We drank to some kind of petrol. So... What else is new with birds? I asked. Shahin explained that someone in China had identified an unknown bird and named it after Confucius. Someone else had discovered that dinosaurs had feathers. This was true not just of avian dinosaurs, but of some other dinosaurs. That reminded me of a Woody Allen line about how the thing with feathers turned out not to be Hope, but was actually his, Woody Allen's, nephew. I didn't have positive feelings about Woody Allen, whose movies so often included scenes of men my parents' age having remedial conversations about free will or dating catatonic-seeming teenagers. Yet I now found it humorous that his nephew, like both the avian and non-avian dinosaurs, had feathers. Was it the wine that helped a person appreciate things uncritically? Was that why Ivan had always been trying to get me to drink? Definitely, it was easier to think of things to say. In the past, my goal in conversation had been to accurately represent the things that I thought and to deploy those thoughts in relation to the things that other people said while exercising caution to not betray ignorant or antisocial ideas. And the whole thing had been so much to think about that in the end, I usually hadn't said anything at all. Svetlana had pointed out that if I actually listened to other people instead of worrying so much about what I was going to say, I would notice that everyone was saying all kinds of antisocial, ignorant, or irrelevant things, which were often just a posture they were trying out, as opposed to a reflection of their essential personality, which was probably a thing that didn't even exist. I hadn't believed her, but she was right. Nobody was actually answering anything anyone else had said, and people were constantly betraying antisocial ideas. Shahin's friend brought me another glass of wine. How easy and pleasant it was to stand there with them, saying whatever random, irrelevant stuff came to mind. The two guys looked amused and occasionally contributed their own random, irrelevant observations, though their general attitude was one of being impressed that I could think of so many more of them. It was implicit that it was girls' role to think of such things and their role to view them as amusing. I felt that I understood for the first time because I was able to participate in it, the persona inhabited by Priya, 
It turned out that I could ask the guys whatever questions I thought of, and they would answer. I asked Shahin's friend where his accent was from, and he said Poland. I asked about the public transportation system in Warsaw, whether it was on the honor system to buy a ticket, whether there were inspectors, like in Budapest, whether he had ever run away or talked himself out of a fine. He smiled evasively and said that it was possible that something like that might have happened. He said you could ride a tram for free if you had fought in the Warsaw Uprising or if your mother had given birth to you on another tram. Later, we were at another party in a dorm. Why did all parties sound and smell the same, even though the component people were different? It was as if all the different individuals came together and formed the eternal entity party person. This reminded me of Voltron, a cartoon about five space pilots who were supposed to defend the universe. In every episode, they got into a terrible predicament where the one who was a girl was always about to have to become a sex slave and carry fruit on her head. At the last minute, they would remember to merge their five rockets, thereby forming Voltron, a gigantic, unbeatable robot man with rocket arms and rocket legs. It was unclear why they didn't become Voltron earlier. It's probably their selfish American individualism, Shahin said. I was impressed by this evidence that he had been following my long story about Voltron. On the other hand, I was pretty sure Voltron hadn't been an American show. Then again, maybe that was why their selfish individualism didn't work better. Thank you so much. Uh, I, I laugh every time I read or hear that <laughs> scene. Um, it's a fantastic reading of Voltron and sort of of every animated cartoon where there's that sort of special superpower that can be called upon, <laughs> um, but really should be called upon so much earlier. Uh, but I guess, as you say, like it's a it's an issue of, um, you know, the functioning trope of the show. Um, but I, I, I love that scene. And I think it reminds me so much of the experience of standing in a college party where you're having a really robust conversation with yourself about the <laughs> awkwardness of these kinds of social interactions. And it's a conversation you rarely share, um, but it's often more interesting or at least more pressing than the kind of bad chat that you have with people in the party. Um, were you remembering your own kind of awkward experiences of just having this running dialogue in your head? Yeah, I, I, you know, I still find parties a real challenge. And I, you know, I was working on this during the pandemic when, you know, it's like you suddenly got this free pass and you didn't have to go to parties anymore. <laughs> and I was thinking about like what parties are. And I was also, you know, I don't know how deep in the weeds to go into the different sort of like philosophical motivations that I had when I was writing this book. It was go into I, the I weeds. Was, <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking a lot about, well, I was thinking in general about like mistakes that we regret in our youth and self-destructive behavior and where it comes from. And, you know, I've been doing a lot of therapy and I've been rereading a lot of books that, you know, meant a lot to me when I was younger and seeing them as being different now. Um, one book I reread was the Kreutzer Sonata, where the narrator, it's the, the late Tolstoy, where it's, uh, you know, the narrator is in a train and some guy comes in and is like, sir, let me tell you about how I had to murder my wife. And the, the wife murdering guy is like, he's explaining how 
voluptuousness and like the the need to like corrupt women and have sex with women and to like sort of destroy women and turn them into like sensual monsters is something that doesn't come natural to any any young man and something that they learn and he talks about being forced to go to a not forced but like kind of dragged to a brothel when he's like a teenager and he's like I'm supposed to do what? Like his brother takes him. And he also talks about learning how to smoke and learning how to drink and how all of those things are these habits that aren't actually natural and they're normalized as natural. And we think that, oh, it's mm. of course people want to do these things, but like they're not. So one thing I wanted to unpack in this in this book was in reaction to what is it that we drink too much? And, you know, I had a smoking issue for many years. It was like really hard for me to, to stop. Um, why do we start all these? I had like romantic, I guess I would describe them as, as problems now with, with men that took up a lot of time. Like how did all of these things get, um, become, why did they seem necessary and why did they seem appealing at the time? Hmm. So I really wanted to think about what was it about the early experiences because I, I did not like alcohol at first. And in the idiot, the character like never drinks. And then at some point it became, um, it became really like key to, especially to functioning in a party. And there's a part later in the book where Sinan is like, Oh, like I understand now why you have to be drunk at parties. It's because human beings are intolerable. Like you can't tolerate being around hmm. them if you're sober. Mm-hmm. And and the reason that that childhood is there in that passage at the beginning is because so much of this like behavior at the party is just a response to the prison of childhood, which is somewhere where you're always kind of like weeping into the ear of a wonderful soft koala. Like it's very, hmm. it's really hard. Everything is is really hard. Um, yeah, I guess that's what I was trying to show. Yeah, I I think that that explains so well why this scene resonates for me, and that's it, that the the act itself is somewhat unnatural, and then mm-hmm. forced upon people as a kind of act of well, I no longer am this child, so now I do mm-hmm. this thing, um, mm-hmm. which makes me think about the role of chance in mm. in Celine's wandering mind. Um, you know, she this is winked at at her pleasure in finding in the course catalog a course called chance which i believe in your in your notes you said you actually took at harvard um but what interests you in the ways in which chance molds our intellect and the activity of our daily thinking mind discovering the extent to which chance plays a huge determining role on our lives it's kind of a traumatic realization that is a very deep part, both of transitioning from a child to an adult. And it's a very deep part of the novel in general of like the development of the novel from the previous literary forms. Freud talks about, there's this essay that I think only literature people read called, uh, family romance <laughs> that by Freud, where he, he talks about the realization that like when you're a very little kid, you just see your parents as gods and that they're the absolute best of all people. And it never occurs to you that you could have different parents or that there are different parents. And then at some point you start to learn that there are different parents and you know, maybe you think that some of them are better than yours or, you know, and it's not just, it's not just realizing you have different parents. I think that there's, this is something I was talking about with my partner, remembering like going over to 
friends' houses in elementary school. And you can just realize like, oh my God, there's people who are poor and this is what their houses look like. Or, oh my God, there's people who are really rich and this is what their houses look like. And if I was Mm -hmm. them, I would go home and this would just be my house. And I think, you know, in the history of the novel, there's also, there's something, I can't totally remember it. And in Marxism and Form by Jameson, where he's talking about, like, before the novel, I think he's talking about, like, some point that Lukács made. And it's like, in the in the epic, the characters are like, their personality, they don't really have personalities. Their, mm-hmm, like, mm-hmm. psyche is somehow, like, seamlessly molded with the world. And then yes, the yeah. novel has, like, it has to give us all of this biographical information because people are determined by all of these circumstances. And it's really the realization that like that kind of there, but for the grace of God realization that like everything that I have, I could easily not have anyone I am. I could, I could just as easily be someone else, which is really kind of like terrifying, but it's also, it's also somehow a subject that you have to master, or at least that's how Satan experiences it, that she has to like grasp the role of chance. And somehow it's almost some way of like outthinking chance. Like if mm-hmm. I can come to understand it, then it means that I'm not, like at the mercy of this randomness anymore. I think it's probably some kind of effort at control behind it. That makes sense. Uh, the The quote from Lukacs is one of my favorites about the development of the novel. And I, I think it's that the novel is the form for a world fractured by sin. And it's mm-hmm. the this idea of the like the continuity, supposed continuity of the the pre-modern time and character could, as you say, be just of the world. And now we are we are distinct from the world, which I, I think mm-hmm. is kind of a nonsense um, reading. It but is, I, right? It can't have been like that in the ancient world, right? Like, it's yeah. just not possible. <laughs> I'm, I'm hoping it's not. That would be such a strange, like, Plato-y existence. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but I love the kind of, like, evocativeness of that. And I do think that there's something to that the novel is interested in how we're both in the world and also very much fractured apart from it. And I think that mm-hmm. Celine, when she's at this party, she feels that. She's like, I'm here mm-hmm. and there's these people. Maybe they're interesting. I don't know. I'll give it a try. But I also feel very distinct from them. Um, sometimes that makes her feel lonely. And sometimes it makes her feel um, like it's it allows her to grow. And that's and I and I think you say it so directly that it allows us to think more about why we make those those kinds of choices. Mm-hmm. So I'm fascinated, you know, obviously the title um, comes from uh, a Kierkegaard um, book. Why Kierkegaard and why um, the Surrealists? And what I think is such a terrible novel, Nadja, <laughs> is is so Im- important to Celine. And so it's it's interesting for the fact that it is interesting to her. But I'm, I'm wondering why those two became um, touchstones. Well, this actually does get into the the biographical, autobiographical origin. So there was a a, a Harvard class called Chance. Um, I I I went to a few meetings, and then I I think I bought the books, and I didn't end up taking it for some scheduling reason. But then I was in touch with the professor again years later, um, and I asked her if she had the syllabus. Anyway, I she it, it ended up it was in Word Perfect, which like doesn't exist anymore. And she found some like software that could extract it, but it didn't extract the whole thing. So like I don't know to what extent this was the syllabus, but 
I remember I definitely a hundred percent read either or that year and like went completely insane. And I, and Nadja <laughs> was everywhere. Everyone had that book and mm. yeah, I agree. It's terrible. And, um, I was just reading like what happened to the historical Nadja that someone wrote a book about it in French. Oh, oh, I can't wow. remember, but yeah, it's, it's not good. She like dies in a mental institution during oh uh, like a cholera epidemic in the war. And it, it's, it's horrible. It's horrible. It's a horrible, horrible story. And it, and it, the, the idea that everyone goes around reading this book without like acknowledging that aspect of it is mm. just completely bonkers. But, um, but I mean, I think this goes back a little bit to the previous question about the role of chance, which is, um, those were the books that, that I experienced and in a way they could have been anything, you know, because they are anything, the things that, that we grow up that surround us, like that is the, those are going to be the really important things. And those are going to be the things that are foundational. And yeah, it's not, it's not the case that it, it couldn't have been any other thing, but like, I guess another reason, like one reason for looking at Nadja is that I remember the way that that was like the kinds of people who had it in their room, the way that the book looked, the way it was invoked, it was considered something that was like cool and sort of edgy mm -hmm. and just not at all ethically problematic. And now it looks so different. So it's just like part of the project of looking back at that time was it was about that. And then with the Kierkegaard, it was, I mean, that idea of the aesthetic and the ethical was already there. I mean, but you know, this was just biographical too, or autobiographical, because when the things that readers of The Idiot commented on either positively or negatively is that there isn't any sex in the idiot and uh some people were at work um sort of found that frustrating and in the conversation around that i just started to remember that like at first i thought that that was a weird comment to have about the book i was like wait what people are upset that they're that these characters in this book don't have sex because it like it hadn't even crossed my mind because it was so closely based on events that happened to me and and like I didn't have sex it's like I didn't think about changing that for the like it, it just never crossed my mind and then but then I was like at first I was like wow how odd these people are to think of this and then I was like well no that's not odd at all it's like it's the most normal thing in the world and then I kind of remembered it was almost like I'd blocked it like in the story that I tell myself about my life like I, I think a lot about that freshman year, maybe because I, you know, the idiot is based on a draft that I wrote in my early twenties. So I kind of had it in my, it was something that I had written about and thought about. And I had never written about the next year, the, my second year of college, which is when I read Kierkegaard's either or, and really kind of went nuts and felt deeply upset. Like I, I felt that my life had been a failure because I hadn't managed to have sex in my freshman year. Mm -hmm. And this somehow fit into Kierkegaard's model of the aesthetic and the ethical life. And I just felt like, oh, I have to write about that because this thing that initially seemed so foreign to me and readers, I had it too, whatever, whatever the, as they had internalized, I also internalized it. And I want to trace the path that it led me on. And it led me, you know, I don't want to like spoil either or, but at least to some dark places that you don't want to end up in. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, this uh, leads to a question that I have about this kind of internal 
division that Selene mm-hmm. feels and as though she's stuck in a body which she feels mm-hmm. estranged from or as you're you were just saying now that there's some expectation that her body will have already kind of performed this what she feels like is now a key function of her matured self and that without it is it is in some way a kind of wasted experience mm-hmm. but after the emotional manipulations of Yvonne and the subsequent misunderstandings and betrayals, Selene is still worried that she might not be made for love, either emotional or physical. How did you think about Selene's attempt at a social awakening in relation to her intellectual awakenings? Yeah, this is such an interesting question. And I you're, you think of you're thinking of Selene in a way very differently than how I thought of her, you know, I didn't, I didn't really feel that she was estranged from her body. Hmm. I felt more like what she was estranged from was the social expectations on her body. Oh, um, yes. that, I, actually, I think that's a better way to say it. I, yeah, I mean, I wrote this book at a time when um, I had, so while I was editing the idiot, I met um, my partner, the, you know, the woman with whom I hope to spend the rest of my life. And until then I'd always dated men. So this was like, it really made me look at my, it made me look at the idiot differently. It made me look at the relationship with Selena and Svetlana differently. It made me do a lot of reading that I hadn't done. And one text that I read that really influenced me and influenced either or was um, Compulsory Heterosexuality by Adrienne Rich. And in general, just the idea of the drives that we take to be natural, like the most natural drives in the world, like the the sex drive is supposedly the most natural drive in the world. To what extent is that an ideological construct? Another book I was thinking about a lot was like in the Neapolitan novels where Ferrante talks about, you know, her character is like, you know, making out with her boyfriend in high school in some gross swamp somewhere. And she feels this like intense sexual promise that then is never quite fulfilled by actually having sex. Like, Mm -hmm. I think that especially Mm -hmm. as a young woman, you feel these intense desires and they're not actually for penetrative intercourse, which is, but it's what you're told that that's what it's for. And it creates this cognitive disconnect. And you're like, what part of me? I mean, I think Céline feels that because of the trouble that she has putting in a tampon, she feels that correctly, as it turns out, that penetrative sex is not going to go super well for her, at least at first. And mm-hmm. it, that that's really the... But she feels all the, you know, she really feels love and desire for Yvonne and and it's, and just in general, and it's really confusing to her. I think that that's the issue that I was trying to get at. Yeah, I think I I had said it sort of clumsily in the question, but I, um, once you sort of reframed it, I think that's a much better way of reading Celine. And it it is how I feel about her and her attempts to understand what it is, what this relationship is between Mm -hmm. desire, um, desire of a lot of different kinds. There's not a single desire for her in the in the novel. Yeah, um, I was actually thinking about like when Marcuse in Eros and Civilization, he talks about like um, procreative genital supremacy. He's like, why isn't Eros diffused over the whole body and in conversations and in all of human existence? And it's kind of something that Adrian mm. Rich is talking about in Compulsory Heterosexuality too, that like lesbianism isn't about this like 
you know, for years I thought that I just was not a lesbian in some essential sense that I now feel does not exist because like I did not have these particular genital urges. And now this just seems bonkers. And so Mm -hmm. I I wanted to go back in the past and see like, where did I get those ideas from? How did they fit in? How was I assimilating them? Like there's a scene when Selene is actually like slowly starting to get the hang of having penetrative sex. And she's like, oh, wow, I feel this glimmer of like what I think you're supposed to feel. And like, I feel as, as excited and satisfied as if I had just seen a whole Shakespeare play and understood all of it. Like she has this feeling that she's finally participating in some great universal experience that she's like finally managed to achieve and to understand. But it's, it's, it's learned, you know, it's something that we don't think of as being learned and it's learned. That's what, that's what I wanted to show. So this relates to a question that I had, which is the distinction that I think Celine comes to find between desire, and and I love that idea of Eros, sort of the potential that Eros could be in all all parts of the body and around us and not just genitally related, Um, but the distinction that she makes between the desires that she has and the contradiction of these men and boys around her who are sometimes interesting, sometimes annoying, sometimes distracting. And at one point she compares uh, her life to the Isaac Babel story, My First Goose. And Mm -hmm. this is quoting from you. Um, There were many things I could relate to in the story. I had spent a lot of my formative years trying to concentrate on what I was reading while surrounded by blonde boys with amazing faces who were farting at me. (laughs) Um, Life... For Celine, has always had this sense that there are men that she is meant to to desire, um, but that that has been distinct from her actual desire. And it's wonderfully comically, um, you know, drawn here with these boys sort of like farting in her direction as she would prefer to read. Um, But I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about why that story ended up being important to her in this moment. Um, That... That's a really interesting question. The Isaac Babel story, my first goose, um, as I remember at the time, it was frequently taught in creative writing classes and you would actually read it separately from it's part of this whole story cycle. But I, I first read it in a creative writing class by itself. And it's about a young intellectual Jewish guy based on Bobbitt himself who goes as a propaganda officer to this like encampment of um, Cossack soldiers who are all, you know, much better physical specimens than him. They're all like big and blonde and have these like incredible faces. And he goes there and they're like, oh, you little sniveling person with your glasses here. We eat people like you for breakfast. Hmm. And he takes out from his suitcase like a copy of the newspaper Pravda and starts trying to read but like all around him these guys are like making farting noises and like just being really rude and then at the end of the story the the Babel character the narrator reads the Pravda out loud no first he first he murders a goose like um with a sword and sort of like gives it to the landlady who's this like blind woman. And he's like, cook this for my dinner. And once he does that, all of the, these kind of like bullies then are like game recognized game. They're like nice to him after that. And they're like, Oh, sit down with us, brother. And then he reads them the Pravda paper and they all get along and they fall asleep in a heap um, looking up at the stars. And it's this like wonderful brotherly moment. I just did not understand that story at all. Like as a young Mm -hmm. woman, I was like, the, the only thing that I could relate to from it was the experience of 
being in high school, trying to read and having like all these kind of people who looked physically very different from me, these very like blonde, handsome children farting at me while I'm trying to like read or concentrate because I, I just want to be elsewhere. That was really the only thing that I could, I could take from that. I don't tend to think to separate the mind and the body. Yeah. You know, I, I don't have a lot of I don't, it, Cartesian dualism is not something I find hugely useful. I actually, um, it, it's kind of insofar as I have it, like all of us do, I've found it, um, it, it really holds me back. And it's when, you know, I'm, I'm able to think more about how ideas make me feel in my body that I'm able to evaluate them better. So just like drawing, draw that, drawing that line is, is um, it doesn't come very naturally to me, but I guess that that is a story about, you know, someone who lives the life of the mind who comes into this place where the mind is not really respected and he has mm-hmm. to like prove himself in the sphere of bodies. And I guess what's alienating to Selin about that is that like, well, and, and this is something that I felt too, like a lot of the time you read these stories about writers who are having adventures and who are like, you know, trying their fortune in the world. And they're doing stuff that girls could never do. You know, if you read that story as a girl, you're just like, if I showed up at that place with those Cossacks, like maybe Satan isn't actually thinking I would be raped, but like she would be raped, you know, like she couldn't mm-hmm. just go there and read Pravda with those guys around the campfire. She couldn't have that bonding. And she has this feeling that like whatever, whatever togetherness they have at the end when they're all like their arms and legs are intertwined and they just ate this like murdered goose that they, you know, kind of bullied the landlady. It's like, it's, it's all this thing of like power and misogyny and, and carnage that excludes her and exists at her expense. And this is what she's being given to teach her how to become a writer. And I think that's the, that's the main alienation there. Hmm. In a similar fashion to Celine's trip to Hungary, the last quarter of the novel takes place in Turkey, where she's gone on a fact-finding mission for the Let's Go guidebook series that Harvard puts out using student explorers who are sent to the four corners of the globe. This change in geography, language, and context seems to allow Celine to connect the missing synapse that bridges her intellect and body. It reminds me of the Kierkegaard quote that is your epigraph. Is it not a pity and a shame that books are are written which confuse people about life, make them bored with it before they begin, instead of teaching them how to live? Is it actually the leaving of college and the leaving of the United States uh, that teaches Celine how to live? That's another really, really interesting question. Um, I think that there is, I mean, I, I, I definitely agree that there's some aspect of life that she can't access in college and in America that she is able to access when she leaves. Mm. Um, I, I think that that she is really, so her parents are, they're from Turkey and they're doctors and they came to America and she's really conscious of being the only person in her family who was born in America and who thus gets to go to Harvard, like the most famous school that like, you know, even people in Turkey have heard of. And she's like really conscious of being beholden and unfairly fortunate and different from everyone in her family, different from her cousins who didn't have chances like that. And of all of this being something that she owes her parents and that ties her in some relationship to her parents. And it's making her feel also that there's, she's aware of America as of the United States as an actor in the rest of the world that like the rest of the world kind of resents and that, 
And that is, you know, like things are bad in the rest of the world so that things can be good in the United States. You know, it's like the United States is like the favorite kid and everyone else has to suffer mm-hmm. so that things in the United mm-hmm. States are good. And it gives her like, she has a, she feels really guilty. And she also feels kind of resentful that like, why does she have to feel this guilt just by being stuck in this place? She also feels like she's like kind of cut off from the real experiences that other people are having in the rest of the world that while in the rest of the world, people are like, you know, living real lives and having, you know, making money and earning honor or dishonor. Like she feels like she's been in this like bubble of American childhood where like you don't earn money and you don't do anything. And you're just like kind of stuck there having to like passively appreciate this time of innocence and like, you know, senior prom and barbecues and frisbee, which she was never really into. So there's a way that like getting to leave that is like, a tremendous relief from her and lets her leave behind some aspect of her childhood that was, she felt was really oppressive. Um, and it's also, you know, America is something that like her parents kind of gave her as a gift that she always has to be grateful for. And just like being able to leave it and be like, you know what, thanks, but for now, no thanks. Mm -hmm, I'm going to try my luck in this harder world feels very, um, vivifying like it feels like it makes her more more alive and more conscious of herself which is something that i actually feel you know when i when i leave the united states i mean i i've realized in later life when i was younger i used to not feel completely american i think because when i was at school i was often identified as like this is a turkish girl or like this is my friend this is my daughter's turkish friend but like you know, having gone back to Turkey to live there as an adult, I realized how deeply American I am. And yet when I leave the United States, I, I feel, I feel some aliveness and wholeness that I feel like I I don't quite feel when I'm here. I'm not really sure why that is. Hmm. Yeah. The, it's the wholeness that she seems to start to experience that. that, I think that's what I was cueing into. Um, Mm. And your explanation of that sense, your own sense that by being outside of the context, that's everything, you know, even when you feel sometimes a stranger to it, you, Mm -hmm. you, you understand, yourself in a fuller way the the let's go guidebook is sort of a, a you know a funny companion to that experience because it's I don't know did you know anyone who did these sort of like jaunts for for um, oh I did them? that I did let's oh, go did in Anatolia and yeah northern Cyprus and uh, amazing. Yeah, that was my route yeah, so it's these <laughs> it's these books that count on very young people, pretty unexperienced, uh, inexperienced people, to be able to narrate um, how one you know gets along somewhere else. But mm-hmm. you know that's such a contrast to what Celine is actually experiencing there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think that that contrast was uh, <laughs> very present for a lot of college students who are like don't totally know how to live anywhere and then have to like teach other people how to live in a country that they don't know at all. Yeah. I always found that (laughs) hysterical. (laughs) Yeah, it is hysterical. Um, Can I be selfish and ask for two sets of recommendations from you? Um, And the first one is only if you enjoy campus novels. And you've said already Ishiguro's um, Never Let Me Go is is an important one for you. If you have Mm -hmm. others in that genre that you'd like, I'd love to know what they are. Um, But also if you would just let us know what's on your nightstand that you're dying to read, I'd be very grateful. When I was 
writing the idiot, I, w- I was thinking about Norwegian Wood, the Haruki Murakami one, which mm. I like just because of the tone. Like the, there's something about, I find Murakami really helpful for, for tone, for just being, for like not being angry and not being checked out either for this mm. kind of like detached, but like, uh, and the emotion is kind of expressed through these unusual comparisons. I don't know. I, I really like him. So he's a, he's a master like. of tone. I mean, yeah, often, even read in translation, I think yeah. tone, tone comes through in, a, in an incredible way. Yeah, the vo- the first person, his first person, that vo- like the stuff that happens. I don't know. I can take it or leave it, but like right, I yeah. would follow that. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, I, yeah, I love him, and uh, I do remember really liking Stoner. The, the was that John Williams? Um, yes, yes, that's right. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I guess those are. That's my... come back into favor again. Yes, with the New York reviews. And then what's on my nightstand lately, you know, I, I'm now trying to read this Georgian novel called The Eighth Life by um, Nina Harachvili, which um, she's uh, Georgian born, but writes in German and has lived in German for like, I don't know, more than 10 years, Germany for more than 10 years. Um, I'm actually planning a trip to Georgia this summer um, to sort of research an essay where I'm thinking about the role of empire in the Russian novel. I kind of want to like mm-hmm. what, what Said was thinking about for the English and French novel. I want to think about for the Russian novel and to what extent oh, those novels that I love, like, you know, um, upheld this idea of, of empire, which is an idea that I started thinking about when I was on a trip to Ukraine in, in 2019. And I could just see how, I mean, not see, people frequently told me at, at length how annoyed they were at Dostoevsky, not just because they were like mad at Russians, but because they said it's the same rhetoric that we see in the novels of Dostoevsky, we see in the fake news that's justifying the you know, occupation of Crimea. And Hmm. at first I was like, oh, these poor people have been traumatized by war and they can't appreciate Dostoevsky anymore. And then I was like, but of course they're right. Like, of course it's the same rhetoric. Mm -hmm. And so I've really been looking at that. And, um, and now all of these Russian dissidents have ended up in Tbilisi. And, um, so I'm planning a trip there actually to, to talk to some students. And, um, and so that made me revisit the, I was like, oh, you know, what parts of the Russian canon were even set in Georgia? So it's like, it's Haji Murad, um, late Tolstoy, uh, Hero of Our Time, Lermontov, Pushkin's Journey to Arzurum. So I have all of those lined up to reread also. And But then I also wanted to read something by um, some some Georgian literature. And someone happened to mention this novel, which is quite new. It's, from, it's a few years old. And it's like, it's extremely long, but it's a family novel that... Um, I think it's advertised as the Georgian War and Peace, but it's so far it's more of a family saga that involves, uh, you know, a patriarch who makes this special kind of chocolate. So it's like full of chocolate and I'm really enjoying it so far. Well, thank you so much for these recommendations, Elif, and, and thank you for such a fascinating conversation about your wonderful novel. I really appreciate it. It's been a complete delight. Thank you for the super thoughtful questions and the generous read. I'm really grateful. Thank you and have a great day. You too. Well, that's all from me for now. My great thanks to Elif Bataman for such an engaging and brilliant interview. You can find links to purchase either or and any of Elif's recommendations at the website burnedbybooks.com. 
There you'll find all our previous episodes and book recommendations. Make sure to subscribe wherever you listen and leave the show a review as it will bring us new listeners. Until next time, this has been Burned by Books. Books.